The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. So my freshman year of college, I got paired with a roommate in the dorm that I did not pick, which if you go uh, off to college, stay in a dorm, that's often the case. You just kind of get assigned a roommate. And so over the summer, right before my freshman year started, I just emailed some random guy and said, hey, apparently we're roommates. I guess I'll see you in August. And I got to, to, um, to college and got into my dorm room, and um, I, I was pleasantly surprised. Like, the guy seemed like a good guy. He was. We got along great. And just seemed like a normal guy. He's actually a pretty conservative guy. He, like, would wear, like, khakis and a polo shirt. Like, just a all-around nice guy, and, um, and so we got along uh, pretty much on everything, all except for one part of our, our relationship. There's one part of our relationship that had some tension. It was over his selection of music. Now, I'm not hard to please when it comes to music, okay? Like, I like all different types of forms of music and can appreciate all different types of music, but my roommate, I come to discover, my freshman year roommate, he loved and listened to, at very loud decibels, screamo death metal music. And I discovered this, um, unfortunately, because he also liked to wake up to that music in the morning, okay? And so I want you to imagine you're lying in your bed peacefully, and all of a sudden, this music blaring, and, and the... I guess you might call it the singing, can only be described as like growling, okay, and shouting and screaming, and like you wake up as if someone's being murdered in your dorm room, okay, and like I wake up like, what in the world is going, what are you listening to? He's like, dude, I love this song. I got to tell you about this group. I'm like, song, I'm like, look, all right. Everyone's entitled to their own different opinion about music. I mean, everyone can have their own opinion, okay, and that, that's true of, of every type of music, but this is not music, Okay, objectively, everyone in the universe is in agreement but you. This is terrible. Okay, like, I don't know what you're thinking. He's like, no, no, it's not that bad. You just got to listen to it. I'm like, listen to it. I can't understand a single thing that's being screamed at me right now. He's like, no, no, it's good. And he said this. He said, okay, look, I'll tell you what. I'm going to a concert this weekend. Why don't you come along and you can scream along with us? And he said, uh, this is exactly what he said. He says, look, I'll be at the first three times you go to a concert, your throat bleeds. But after that, you get used to it, okay? So I, I passed on the, the concert, okay? And we set up some, some ground rules, okay, about when was an appropriate time. Waking up in the morning is not the best time. But we set some ground rules on, on his music, okay? And, and some things, I say all that to say some things in this life are subjective. Everyone is entitled to their opinion. If you are here or you're watching online and it's your first time and you're like, well, I kind of like screamo music. Okay, it's fine. I'm glad that you're here. Okay, so there's some things in life that are subjective. Everyone's allowed to their own opinions. But there's some things in life that are just objective realities and their truths. One is open to whatever anyone wants to think. There's other things that they're just not. Like, for example, all humans breathe oxygen. It doesn't matter what you want to think. It doesn't matter what you want to believe. Um, that's just the reality. If you decide just because you want to to stop breathing oxygen, you're going to die. Okay? There's just, there's some things that are objective. They're concrete. They're reality. There's some things that are subjective. They're open to different uh, people's opinions. Now, in our culture, we are very sensitive we as a people are very sensitive to the things that are objective and the things that are subjective. 
If you say something or I say something is, is objective, which someone else feels is subjective, if I say, no, this is true, well, no, I think that's open interpretation, then, we have, then, then it, it's very touchy. It can feel like, oh, that's, you're oppressing me, you're, you're pushing that on me. No, that is, that's open to whatever anyone wants to believe. We're, we're very sensitive on the things that are objective and the things that are subjective. Uh, let me just get right to the point of where I'm going. There's a very, very important question that we have to wrestle with when it comes to spirituality. Is that open for what anyone wants to think or is there one objective truth? Let me put it a different way. Is it arrogant or maybe even oppressive to say there is one way to get to God or one way to get to heaven and the other ways are then, that's true and the other ways are not true? Is that arrogant? Is that closed-minded? Is it oppressive? And, and hear me, I'm not saying is how it's delivered, is it arrogant? You can deliver anything arrogantly. And we should never do that. We should always approach people with humility and, and grace and love. I'm saying is the actual content of that statement, is that just inherently arrogant and even oppressive? That is really an important question because what we believe about that will change and shape then how we lead our children. It'll shape how we engage our friends engage our family members, it, it changes how we operate even in our own lives. And so I want to take a look at that question today, but specifically, we're going to address that question specifically logically. We're going to use, we're going to take that question and say, what, do, what does logic have to say about that particular question? I want you to open in your Bibles to Jude, the book of Jude. It's the second to last book in the Bible. There's only one chapter. We're going to verse 5. Jude verse 5. And as you're turning there in your Bible, your Bible app, um, let me just give you some context. This is a very small letter written by a guy named Jude to a group of Christians in a church. It's written to a church context. And he was writing, initially he was writing, he's like, look, I had some things on my mind. But then he said, last minute, I shifted gears and I started writing about something else because there's something urgent on his mind. There was a group of, of people within the church whose thinking was very dangerous. And that thinking was starting to influence the church and they were so urgent about it. He was so urgent about it, how dangerous that was, that he wrote to them about that and, and really um, speaking against this group within that church. And they say, well, what was so dangerous like in their thinking? Like what could be so bad? We talked about it a little bit last week, but essentially it's this. There was a group within the church that was basically making stuff up spiritually to justify how they wanted to live with their bodies. Basically, kind of reverse engineering. This is how I want to live. This is what I want to do. Let me then find some spiritual rationalization to justify it. Uh, under the, we get this undercurrent in this text uh, that there's something having to do with angels in here. In this time in history, when this was written, there were a lot of people that had a fascination with angels. They would study angels, think about angels, and even worship angels. And so there seems like under the surface, as we'll see as we go through there, he references angels a lot. And it seems like this group that he's opposing is somehow using these subjective spiritual experiences, maybe involving angels somehow to justify their Experience. Hey, I know you don't want me to treat you that way, but that's how I just want to treat you. And I had a dream and an angel told me it was okay, so I'm, I'm good. 
They have these subjective spiritual experiences so that they can live and operate however they want. He's saying that's very, very dangerous. And, and here's what he says. We're going to pick it up in verse 5. Go to Jude, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now pause with me for a second. You're like, whoa, that verse just did not go where I think that was going to go. And man, anytime you talk about God like destroying people, that makes me super uncomfortable. I don't like to go into those parts of the Bible. That kind of weirds me out. What is Jude talking about here? Well, he's talking about an episode in the Old Testament. And you might say, look, I don't really know much about the Bible. I'm not a church person. I don't know about the Bible. But I bet you know at least some of this one particular story. It goes all the way back to Exodus. And there's a group of God's people that are enslaved in Egypt. And the Pharaoh is using those people to build all of his monuments as slave labor. And they're calling out to God, and God has had enough of this oppression. So he sends a rescuer, a guy by the name of Moses, to deliver them. Moses walks into Pharaoh's court and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's not about to let his, his uh, workforce that he has for free go. So he says, absolutely not. And then uh, God uses Moses to bring about 10 miraculous plagues against Pharaoh. And through these plagues, these miraculous plagues, God is showing that, that he is more powerful than the most powerful empire in the, in the world at that time and all of its gods. And so by the end of these 10 plagues, kind of culminating with this death angel, so there's a, an angel part to the story, culminating with this death angel, finally Pharaoh is, calls in Moses and says, please, just get out, take all the people and go. And so um, God says, okay, but before you go, I want you to do this last thing. I want you to have all of the people of Israel go knock on the door of their neighbors in Egypt and ask them for their gold. Hmm, I wonder how that's going to go. They knock on the door and they say, hey, uh, give me your gold. And all the people of Egypt freely just give them the gold. That's like another miracle. And they walk out of Egypt essentially without lifting a finger. God has defeated and plundered the most powerful empire in history. They walk out into the wilderness and then they face their first obstacle. They come up to the, the Red Sea and they hear, hoofbeats and chariots behind them and they see the dust kicked up, kicked up in the horizon and they see the most powerful army, the Egyptian army, chasing them down. Apparently Pharaoh has changed his mind. And despite the fact that they've seen all of these plagues, they've seen this mighty uh, power of God to defeat Pharaoh and, and uh, the entire empire, they fall apart. They don't have any faith. And they start complaining, oh, God, clearly you've brought us out of here. Moses, what are you doing? You just didn't want us to die in Egypt. You want us to die out here. And Moses says, look, all you will have to do is watch and see that God will fight for you while you keep silent. He turns over to the Red Sea. He holds out his staff in his hand. And God peels back the waters. There's two walls of water with dry land like a highway through the middle. And all of God's people go through the Red Sea on dry land. And then when the last one gets to the other side, you've got Pharaoh's army just stampedes after them into the Red Sea. And the sea closes up on top of them and destroys all of them. And once again, God has shown his power. And they sing a song. The next chapter is a song about how mighty God is, about how no one can stop God. He's the most powerful being in existence. And then they go into the desert. And three days later, they have no water. 
and they have no faith. Still, they fall apart again. Moses, why have you done this? You've brought us out of here to die. There's no water. And once again, God shows up and, and he turns this, this uh, body of water that's all bitter into sweet water so they can drink it. And then he takes them to this perfectly tailored oasis to, their, to them as a people. And then he takes them out of the wilderness and then they don't have food. And they're like, God, why are you doing this again? No faith. Why are you doing this? We have no food. And then he miraculously provides manna. And then they go collect this, this bread from heaven out uh, around. It appears every morning and they gather it in and he miraculously provides, and then he takes them to Mount Sinai. And he says, look, I, I've shown you who I am. I'm a God who has more power than any other being in existence. I've, I've rescued you. I've led you out of Egypt, but now I'm going to make you my people, and I'm going to turn you into a people to let the rest of the world know who I am. And so I'm making a covenant with you today. And so Moses, go up Mount Sinai, meet with me. My tangible presence is going to come down on Mount Sinai. And he says, because my holy presence will be there, don't let anyone set one foot on Mount Sinai but you, Moses. In fact, fence it off because I am so holy, if anyone else steps on the mountain, they'll be killed. And so they're all standing back. Moses goes up the mountain and all of a sudden this cloud descends and there's thunder and there's lightning and, and the mountain is shaking and they're watching as God is giving them the law, the Ten Commandments, and they wait a week. Two weeks, three weeks, after 40 days, Moses comes back down the mountain, and what does he find? They couldn't wait. They had no faith. They take all of their gold, their gold earrings and bracelets and necklaces, they take all of it, they take it to Moses' brother Aaron, the high priest, and they demand, turn this gold into an idol. And he melts down all this gold just in the span of those weeks, and he sets up a golden calf, and they all bow down worship it when Aaron says, this, this is the God. You know, the one that used to be earrings like two days ago. This is the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And they worshiped it. And Moses came down and he destroyed. What are you doing? Haven't you learned yet? And time after time, as they're going through the wilderness, you, we see that that generation, they, so few of them had faith. And when it was clear that they had no faith, God said, okay, I cannot take this generation into the promised land. They're just going to have to wander until the last one has died out, until this generation is destroyed. And the very few who had faith went into the promised land with the next generation. Now, why is... Jude bringing this up. Like, why is he reminding us of, of this story? He wants to remind us that judgment is a real thing. It's real. But he's got a, another example here. I want you to look at verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Example number two has to do with angels. Remember, there's an angel undercurrent here with his opposition. And so he's talking about angels, and he says, yes, there is a, an, an angelic realm. There are angels that serve their creatures. All angels are creatures that God made. They're serving the almighty God, and they stand before God, uh, uh, holy before God, and they they're serve him. But there are some that rebelled. There are fallen angels. They make up the, the devil and, and the demons, and they are dark forces. And he says, those, that have, those demons that have rejected God and rebelled against against God, he says, there's actual judgment waiting for them. That is very real, he says. Why does he bring up this example? He wants to know that there's such a thing as judgment. 
That's a real thing. He's got one more example here. I want to keep going. Verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. You know, um, all through the Bible, these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, are used as an example of God's judgment. They're cities that God destroyed. And the story is told in the book of Genesis. And interestingly, this book of Jude was written in that first generation that walked with Jesus. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah took place 2,000 years before that in the time of Abraham. But historians that wrote, one by the name of Philo and others, who wrote at the time of Jesus, at the time that Jude wrote this, historians have noted multiple different sources that in the region where Sodom and Gomorrah was, Still, at, at that time, 2,000 years later, at the time of Jesus, still smoke and sulfur still was rising up to the sky. It was almost like for 2,000 years, it was a marker of God's judgment. Now you say, okay, what happened that was so terribly wicked that God would say, I've got to remove these cities off the map? Like, what was it? That happened. Well, if you go back to the story, um, it says that there was people that were so oppressed in those cities that they were calling out, and God could not allow that that oppression, that vile oppression, to continue. In fact, here's what it says in Ezekiel, one of the prophets. This is one of the places Sodom and Gomorrah are referenced. At least Sodom is. It actually says this was the core issue, the core sin of Sodom. Here's what it says. This is Ezekiel 16, 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. What was the core issue in Sodom and Gomorrah is they were prosperous, they uh, were at ease, but they were just so full of pride. It was so overflowing that they didn't care about those that were in need. There was just no love. It was completely vacuumed out of those cultures. They didn't care. Actually, they would abuse and oppress the needy. How bad did they abuse and oppress the needy? Well, let me tell you the story from back in Genesis, and I'm going to try and tell the story as PG-13 as I can. Here's how it plays out. God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham says, God, please don't destroy those cities because my nephew Lot and his family lives in in Sodom. Please don't destroy them. And God says, yeah, but their wickedness is so unbelievably vile. And he says, "Um, okay, but if there's just a few righteous there, would you spare them? And he says, absolutely. I would spare them if there was a little bit of a few righteous people there. And so then God sends two angels. Notice we also have another angel story here. He sends two angels into Sodom, and it says as they enter into the city, it says Lot is sitting at the gate. Now, only the local civic rulers would sit. That's the position where they would meet uh, and where they would sit. So that seems to indicate that Lot is not just a citizen. He's one of the people in charge. That doesn't speak very highly of Lot's character. These two angels come in, and uh, Lot says, hey, are you new around here? And they say, yes. 
And um, uh, they just, uh, he says, well, where are you, you staying? And they said, we're just going to stay here in the, uh, the center of town here, the town square. And he says, please don't do that. I'm begging you, please come to my house. Which is normal in Eastern hospitality at this time. They would invite um, people who are passing through into their homes. But he's begging them. Why? Because he knows the culture of those cities and he knows what will happen. He obviously doesn't know that they're angels. They're part of the armies of heaven. They can handle themselves. Humans are no match for them. He doesn't have good theology of angels. Nevertheless, he knows what is going to happen and he begs them to come and stay in his house. They go that night. They stay at Lot's house. When darkness falls, it says every man in the city from the youngest to the oldest encircle Lot's house and demand that Lot send out these two angels so that they can gang rape them the entire night. Lot pleads with them not to do that, and the angels say, it's time to go, Lot. What's happening? They have, their wickedness has gone to such a degree. They're so obsessed over the top with themselves, their own desires. They care so little for the needy that if two strangers come through the town, instead of saying, hey, let's take care of these people that don't know anything, don't know where to stay, these two weary travelers, in their minds, these are opportunities to abuse them with violence to death through the night. That is the extent of their wickedness. So, the angels take Lot and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah and God destroys those cities and brings judgment upon them. And for 2,000 years, the smoke rose to the sky as a reminder that judgment is real. Now, you say, you know, when I was thinking about coming to church this week, you know, this is not exactly what I was anticipating that we would talk about, okay? Like, I was just kind of looking for an old shot in the arm, a little encouragement, um, a whole discussion about Sodom and Gomorrah and judgment. That's not really what I was anticipating. And honestly, I'm not sure what that has to do with my life and how I'm going to navigate the circumstances that I have going on. I mean, what is the big deal? Why is it so important that Jude remind us that judgment is is real. Man, it's absolutely vitally important because it addresses back the original question that we asked. I mean, what things are objective and what things are subjective? Is it, I mean, is it arrogant to say that there's only one way that someone could be saved or engage God? Well, if judgment's real, then that is an important part of that question. Let me put it differently to you. Um, when I was a kid, I was in middle school, and we were, I was on a family trip, and we were in New Mexico, and we went to this place called Carlsbad Caverns. And it's this big cave that uh, you can go down and search in. In fact, I, I think we have a picture of that cave. Yeah, there we go. It's this huge cave, and they have these places that you can sit out, and at certain times of the day, like a bazillion bats fly out of the cave, which I don't know why you'd want to go see that. It sounds terrifying, but they have this huge cave, and if you can, you can take tours down into the cave, and they weave, yeah, it looks like this, and you can weave down through the, all of this, these caverns. They, they go deep, deep underground, and they've got all 
these stalactites and stalagmites or whatever, which one is which, I can never remember, but they have all of these things, and it's, they light it up, and it's beautiful, and I mean, these are, it is, goes so far down underground that the tour is like an hour or two hours, and it really is fascinating, and it really is beautiful, and they tell you far more about caves than you ever wanted to know, and uh, I remember about an hour into this, I'm so turned around, I mean, I, I'm just in totally dependence of this guide that's just taking us down through this, and we're weaving around back and forth, and I remember thinking, man, like, if I would have no idea at this point how to get out of this cave, and I, I don't really think of myself as a claustrophobic person, but there was something that then took place next which really pushed that belief about myself, Okay. We're there, and the guide says, look, um, we're deep underground. I can't remember. She's like, we're a million miles under the ground. I don't remember how far we were. She's like, we're so far underground, and, and we've got this all beautifully lit up. And she says, I want you to see and get a feel for how dark it is in this cave when we turn out all the lights. And I'm thinking, why, um, why do we want, I don't need to know that. We can, I'm fine. Let's leave the pretty lights on, okay? And so she had a little button. She turned out the lights, and it went black. I mean, I can't express to you how dark. You could feel how dark it was. Like to say you couldn't see the hand in front of your face is an understatement. And, and in there, in the darkness, okay, down underground, not having any idea how to get out, thoughts started going through my head, okay? And I started to think, Okay, if this cave started to, I don't know, collapse, okay, I'm not sure I know my way out. Okay, now I want you to imagine you're deep underground in the darkness, and you hear this rumbling and earthquake, and the cave starts to collapse, and your guide says to you this, look, um, by my opinion, I've been working here for uh, 20 years, I'm pretty much an expert, uh, by my opinion, there's only one way out of this cave, and if you don't get out now, you're going to die. However, I don't want to impress that and force that on you, so let you all pick your own way out of this cave. Everyone, run amok. Just go find your way. Try not to let a stalactite hit you in the forehead as you're running, but I I'm going to go my way. You go your way, okay? At that moment, the most loving thing that that guide can do is everyone calm down, follow me. There's one way out, and it's this way. Why? See, the difference between saying there's only one right way or not, the difference with that, it's either the most arrogant thing you could say or it's the most loving thing you could say. And the difference is whether it's objective truth or subjective truth. And so the, the opinion of our culture is that, oh man, I mean, everyone, like spirituality, like everyone's entitled to pick their own way spiritual. It's subjective. You pick your way spiritually, I'll pick my way spiritually, and free that up. And don't come at me and impose your spiritual beliefs. That's arrogant. And here's what I would say. That's only arrogant. If you're starting with the presupposition that spirituality is subjective. If you're starting with the preconceived idea that it's subjective and open to opinion, then of course it feels arrogant. But let me push that. Of all things, let's just apply logic to this, of all parts, if we take the time, if we bother to believe in a God, in a force that created and invented everything, if there's some kind of designing being in this universe, if we bother to believe in that, 
then here's logically what we're believing. We're believing that there is one being that has defined and created all the rest of reality, which makes that one being the most concrete, objective being in all the universe. Why do we start with the position that spirituality is subjective? Logically speaking, we should say, if that being I believe in set all reality to the most objective truth, because if that's objective truth, and there's only one way out, then that's reality, and it's the most loving thing I could do to share it. Not share it arrogantly, but the content itself is actually loving. See, here, here's what this is saying. The, the message of Jesus is fundamentally different than our modern-day culture. See, our modern-day religion, like the basic religion that our culture believes in, goes something like this. Look, you're not a bad person. You're fine. You're like everybody else. You're just trying to make it through. You have ups. You have downs. And it's nice to be well-rounded and have a spiritual side of your life. That's good. And it's good probably to expose your kids to that. And it's helpful because when things go bad in your life, it's nice to have something spiritual to kind of press into and lean on. And if there's something good that you just really, 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 really want and you need a little help just kind of getting over the hump to get it, like if there's just something you really, really want, then you can just dial up the religious stuff. You can pray a little harder, go to church a little bit more, be a little bit better of a person and hope that whatever the spirituality that, you, that, that you're after will help you get that thing that you really want. But the bottom line is the starting place of our culture religion is you're fine. You're a good person. You're not bad. There's a couple extreme bad people out there, but you're not one of them. You're okay. You know, that's not what Jesus said. He didn't start from that place. Where he started is, you're not fine. Jesus said, you're spiritually bankrupt. He said, you and I are enemies of God. Say, whoa, that's a little intense. I don't see myself as an enemy. I mean, I, I feel fine. He says, because God is holy, and then God says, be holy as I'm holy. So the standard of being good enough is perfect holiness. And so anytime we're not perfectly holy, we've sinned. And well, what do you mean by sin? You know, is that like robbing banks? Well, yes, but also things like uh, an ungodly mindset. It could be a, a selfish thought. It could be a lustful thought. It could be a bad motivation. It could be not telling the truth. Any one of those things is a sin, and it's a sin against an eternal being. So an e a sin against an eternal being, the punishment is an eternal punishment. So here's what Jesus is saying. You're not fine. It's not, you're not okay. It doesn't matter how you feel like, you're not okay. And so he's saying what you need is not just a little more religion. He says you don't need a re another religious figure telling you to do this or that. What you need is you need to be rescued. You need a savior. What is he saying that you need? I, I want to point you to probably what, what, what might be the two most beautiful verses in the entire Bible, it's the end of the book of Jude, verse 24 and 25. Can I read this to you? It's just beautiful how he ends this little letter, verse 24 and 25. Listen to these words. He says, it's, it's a worship 
a doxology. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He says, we have only one God, and that God is our Savior. We have only one God. He's, he's, the most, he's got all glory and majesty, all beauty. He's got all dominion and authority. He's got all power. But he became our Savior. See, here's the thing. If Jesus is a religious figure and you're going after a religious figure, well then, of course, you know, seek out a bunch of religious figures. Take a little bit from Confucius and some from the Buddha and some from the Dalai Lama and Muhammad and Jesus and some other people and mix and match. Choose your own adventure. Take a little of this, whatever sounds good. If you want a religious figure and if it's all about you're fine and just religion just kind of helps you be a little bit better, well then, take from all kinds of things. But before you add Jesus into that mix, Consider what he said. He didn't say he was a religious figure. He said he was a savior. That's different. Here's what he said. This is his words out of the book of John, for chapter 14, verse 6. He says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, I'm the only way. It's repeated again in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, here's the thing. The issue is not about a group of religious figures and pulling from each of them because we're fine and we want to get a little better. The issue is we need to be saved and God offered us a savior in Jesus Christ because judgment is real and we're facing judgment. And because we have a savior, there could only, there could only possibly be one way. It's through Jesus. And here's the incredible good news. Jesus is not saying... Come to me, because I'm going to teach you how to just try harder and earn your way in. He says, come to me. I, I took all the judgment for you. You say, man, I hear those Old Testament stories, and it's just all full of, like, God's angry all the time, and he's, he's just, like, bringing wrath and judgment. And really, when you dig into those stories, you see how patient he was. Years and years, sometimes generations he waited. You say, but why is it so different in the New Testament? It's about love and grace and mercy. It's different because God himself entered into his creation in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And he dies on a cross, his body maimed and brutalized and tortured. And he dies crucified on a cross, taking all of our sin on himself. What was he doing? He was taking all of that judgment and wrath once and for all on himself, extinguishing it and exhausting it on himself so that you and I... It's offered as a free gift, and anyone who takes that as a free gift and puts their faith in Jesus can walk in grace and freedom and forgiveness and the love of God with all of our sins paid for. Some of you are here today, and you've thought this whole time Christianity was a religion. 
No, it's about having a Savior. Receive that Savior today, please. But I want to remind you that this was written to the church. Remember, Jude wrote this to the church. So we're the ones that need to be, to be reminded that judgment is real. Why do we as, as believers need to be reminded that judgment is real? I, I actually think it's important because I think sometimes we forget. And what happens when we forget that there is such a thing as judgment and it is real? It numbs our lives down. It's like when we forget that reality, we lose the urgency in our lives. And all of a sudden, the, the world, it's like it, it anesthetizes our lives. It's like anesthesia to our lives. And all of a sudden, we start going through our life, and we slowly, slowly just kind of drift into like, look, I'm just trying to make it. I got my financial goals, my career goals, my relationship goals, my family goals. I've got all these goals. I've got my health goals, and I'm just trying to do it. And I kind of sprinkle a little bit of Jesus in my life to try and help me reach my goals. But if judgment is real... And Jesus is not a religious figure, he's a savior. Then Jesus is not just something periphery that we can add into our lives. No, that means that Jesus is an all or nothing situation. He gave everything to save us, so we respond with everything back. And if judgment is real and we have a savior, if the gospel is true, then we weren't rescued out of, out of standing condemned needing judgment. We weren't just rescued to then just go up go about our lives a little bit more spiritually comfortable pursuing our own goals. No, we've then been rescued and have a mission to take the most important message out to the world. That if judgment is real, that means we have friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors that are facing something very real, an eternity set apart from God. And the solution is Jesus and it's offered for free. And if judgment is real, then we have been given a mission. We've been rescued to rescue. If judgment is real, then we can't sit back with the luxury of knowing the gospel and having those that are spiritually impoverished around us and do nothing for the spiritually needy. If judgment is real, then that means that we have a mission on our lives and the most important thing we could do is get the one single message of salvation that this world desperately needs to get that out. That's the most important thing we could possibly do. So may we be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Can I challenge you, Christian Maybe today you're challenged to confess before God your apathy. I've forgotten how critical the mission of salvation is and that I'm called to it. And maybe you look at your prayer life and you say, my prayer life needs to change. No longer will my prayer life just simply be, God, can you make my life more easy and more comfortable and more prosperous? But you're going to leverage more of your prayer life to do spiritual battle for the sake of the souls that are lost around you that have one hope and his name is Jesus. 
Maybe it's that you take inventory of your time and your energies and say, I'm going to take inventory because I'm realigning. I'm not going to just slip into using all of my, my gifting and all of my, my time and all of my thought and my creativity and my en- energy to just meet my own career goals or financial goals or retirement goals or family goals or relationship goals or friendship goals or, or just comfort goals. No, I'm going to leverage my time. I'm on this earth for a short time before I enter into eternity in heaven and I'm going to spend this life and I'm going to re-engage and find ways to spend my life so that people may know about the message of Jesus. And maybe some of you this week, you say, you know what, because of this past year, I've kind of disconnected from church. I I used to be more connected. I used to be more a part of the mission. I used to be more serving, more active and inviting and sharing my faith. And I've slipped into this apathy, but I'm changing course today and I'm re-engaging and being a part of the most important mission that he's released the church to do in this world because judgment is real and there is a hope and his name is Jesus. Maybe you take inventory of your resources and your finances and you say, look, am I taking all of these finances which are really God's that he's given me to steward and am I using all of them for my own comfort and my own, my own security? Am I hoarding all of these things or should I be using them and leveraging them because I'm going to leave all of it behind one day? Can I leverage more of that to see as many people as possible come to faith in Jesus Christ? And maybe today you, you take inventory of your life And if you've forgotten that there's a reality of judgment and there's only one hope, Jesus. It's exclusively one way to be saved. That maybe today you will be reignited to give your life to that work. May we remember that judgment is real. And remember who took that judgment for us. And take that message to the world. We're going to conclude our, our time with communion. If you uh, got one of these, uh, the communion elements when you came in, uh, go ahead and grab that if you need one. Um, we'll have some ushers come down and they'll uh, make one available if you need one. If um, you're watching online, just take a moment and go get a, a bread or cracker element and some juice. If you're here or you're watching online and you say, look, I, I'm not sure that I believe in Jesus then hold off from taking this because that's what this is. It's a declaration that Jesus is our savior. But maybe you're like, I'm ready to make that declaration today. Then let this be your first step. This ancient symbol, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took these elements and he told us these are symbols and reminders. As often as we take these things together, they're reminders of what he did for us. You can go ahead and peel that top layer off and take that bread element. He took the bread and he broke it in front of his disciples and he said, this is a symbol of my body that's broken for you. He says, as often as you take this, be reminded of of my broken body. And here's what I want you to remember. All that judgment was expended on Jesus, exhausted on him. There's none left for you. Let's take this bread together. can open that foil part. In the same way, he took the cup after dinner and saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. He shed his blood so that we could be saved once and for all, forgiven for eternity. As we take this juice, be reminded 
that judgment has been expunged from our record because it was placed on Jesus. He's our Savior. Let's take this together. Believer, as you're tasting the sweetness of that symbol in your mouth, the flavor is rolling around your mouth, be reminded the glorious one became grotesque, brutalized and maimed, bloodied on a cross. The sovereign one surrendered, laid down his power, gave his life up. The blameless one took all of your blemishes. Now go, spread that message to all the world. And do not rest until your Savior whispers, well done, good and faithful servant, in your ear. That is your mission. That is your calling. But some of you are here and, and need to make Jesus your Savior for the first time. Would you take that step? There's only one way to be saved. It's not about being more religious. There's only one way to be saved. It's God himself taking your punishment for you. and He offers that to you as a free gift. You just have to receive that. And you can do that now through a simple prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And wherever you're at, whether you're watching on your couch at home or watching on your phone or your tablet, or you're sitting here in one of these seats, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, make this your prayer silently before him. Just say this. Say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. I believe you died on the cross and that that paid my, for my sin. I believe you rose again from the dead. I give you my life, all or nothing. I will follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.